You are listening to She the Change, a podcast that inspires future change makers to start taking action because everyone has the power to change the world. My name is Itasha Donthi, and I'm a change maker best known for being the CEO and founder of a charity called Hope and Joy for Children. And I'm sitting down with female leaders who are advocating, empowering, and initiating change on a local and global scale. Here we talk about how they got started, their inspiration, and most importantly, how others can make an impact. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Anukia, a 16-year-old writer and organizer from the Bay Area, California. She's the founding executive director of Celebrating Differences Organization, a nonprofit focused on promoting neurodivergent awareness and inclusivity that serves five locations across the nation. Outside of celebrating differences, Anouk is a nationally recognized spoken word poet. She was the 2018 Cupertino City Youth Poetry Slam champion and a 2020 National Student Poet Program semifinalist. She has spoken after prominent figures, including Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, California State Controller Betty Yee, and peace activist Ella Gandhi, and has been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Reappropriate Journal, Times Herald, and more. She also serves as a California delegate to the International Congress of Youth Voices. During our conversation, Anouk discussed how we can do our part in promoting neurodivergent awareness, inclusivity, and allyship, how she started a national nonprofit celebrating differences organization, and how she used her voice and writing to speak up and bring awareness to current issues through spoken word poetry. It was a pleasure speaking with Anouk and learning about her perspective. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, Anouk. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here talking to you. Yeah, so let's definitely just get right into it. Can you give the audience a little background about yourself? Yeah, for sure. So, um, hi, my name is Anouk, and I'm a 16-year-old writer and organizer from the Bay Area, California region. And so um, just a little bit background on kind of the work I do. So I'm a spoken word poet, and I really enjoy writing, um, listening, and performing slam poetry, um, especially work that's um, very like political and related to current events. And um, in terms of organizing, I serve as the executive director of Celebrating Differences organization. And so we're a youth-led organization that promotes neurodivergent awareness, inclusivity, and also um, creating safe spaces for um, neurodivergent allyship. That's amazing. I'd love to learn more about how you were as a child and how that has shaped your experiences today. Um. Yeah, definitely. So I think... Growing up, I was really lucky to have like um, parents that really like supported me in terms of like writing and literature. I remember like when I was younger, my mom would always like be introducing me to like new books and new reads, just things that got me really interested in like, I guess, like the humanity side and like literature. Um, And I think that has kind of like transpired into like my love for language today. And um, a funny story that my mom used to tell um, about like me growing up is um, when I was younger, I was someone who like wouldn't ever take no for an answer. And like, Mm -hmm. I guess in retrospect, that wasn't the greatest thing for my parents because sometimes I'd be just really annoying. But um, (laughs) she would, yeah, she told me there was this one time, um, I think I'm blanking on the exact situation, but I think it was like we were either at like a, concert or like a performance or something but um there was someone we were like at some venue and there was someone on stage um who was like asking for volunteers um to go up and like perform like a dance or something like that and I was like I think I was like five years old and then so like I remember my well this is my mom telling me I don't have like a recollection of this but she was like I raised my hand and then the person was like oh no sorry like you're too young we want like older volunteers and then so he called up like some other people on the stage and they like kind of did this like routine honestly I don't remember like what event it was to be honest but um and like they started dancing and then I like decided to like walk like just in front of the stage and kind of like do my own dance in front of there and 
my mom said like that was like one of the moments when she realized that I was like definitely someone who didn't really take no for an answer and like Mm -hmm. I think that is kind of reflective of like kind of the person I am today is in the sense like if something doesn't work out on the first try or if I'm like told no about something that I really care about I usually like try to find a way to like work outside of the system if you will to make it happen yeah I think that's also really funny how at such a young age you were so confident and ready to go up on that stage and you know dance your heart out (laughs) and (laughs) it really translates to your work today performing on stage with your spoken word poetry Mm -hmm. yeah definitely I definitely agree Mm mm-hmm so how is living in the Bay Area shaped who you are today? Um, That's a really great question because I think so much of my identity, I feel like, is rooted in being from the Bay Area. And I know a lot mm-hmm. of the times, like, people in the Bay say, like, oh, people from here, like, we all have, like, this certain type of personality or, like, that's our entire personality. But I actually really appreciate it because... Um, Both my parents are um, first generation immigrants from Taiwan. And what's really nice about the Bay Area is like, it's like this really like great diverse hub of like second generation immigrant like students. And like, so we kind of have our really like a really nice supportive community, which I really like. And that in turn kind of translates into like the breadth of culture that we get exposed to. Um, I think in terms of like, so I feel like, Living in the Bay Area definitely has made me very, like, confident in my racial identity or at least, like, Mm -hmm. has made me, like, very, I guess, made me someone who was, like, really sure in who I am just because I was surrounded by a community that literally almost everyone had the same experience, which, in a sense, I guess, is, like, very nice and comforting since um, a lot of, I guess, a lot of places in the U.S. aren't exactly like that. Um, But I think in terms of, like, organizing and in terms of like poetry um I also really really like being in the Bay Area just because I feel like there's a lot of um a lot of people who are really passionate about the things they do like a lot of young people here are like going out on a limb to do things that they enjoy like there are a lot of like youth like activists here and then youth like entrepreneurs and the energy here is just like very like progressive like, I guess, politically progressive, but also in the sense of, like, kind of doing, like, working on new projects and taking on Mm -hmm. new endeavors. So, yeah, I think just kind of the mix between, like, the energy and the culture here is what makes the Bay Area so great, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to you on the aspect that I'm also a second-generation immigrant, and where I live, everyone is so, you know, inclusive, and I don't think our area is necessarily as diverse as the Bay Area. So I think I, you know, I lost out on that aspect. And there's so much you can learn from other, you know, cultures. But Mm -hmm. the inclusive space here is something that I'm so thankful for. And Mm -hmm. I can relate to you on that. Definitely. Uh, Yeah. So who were your inspirations growing up? And are they the same people you look up to today? Ooh, huh. I think growing up and this is kind of ironic since I literally just talked about like the Bay Area being super diverse but I think Mm -hmm. growing up a lot of like the people I looked up to like were like I guess because I guess I'll take like a step back growing up even though like the Bay Area was super diverse I think a lot of like the literature and media I consumed were like kind of still centered around like white children and like white students Mm -hmm. or like people of European descent so in turn I think that kind of translated into like me looking up to mostly like because from a young age I enjoyed writing like reading the work of like white writers and writers of European descent where there's like nothing wrong with that but um like I ended up not really seeing myself within like the narrative or like the narrative I looked up to and like the people I looked up to so I think like growing up it was definitely like more of like a Eurocentric mindset but I think that shift and like the people I looked up to kind of like shifted I think like the summer of my eighth grade year so the summer of my eighth grade year I like started getting involved with like poetry and more involved with like organizing and then there I was able to like 
find a lot of like by POC, like young people that I really look up to, like poets and organizers. Um, some people that like I really look up to right now um, are um, Sally Wen Mao, and she's this amazing poet. And um, I was able to meet her in Puerto Rico uh, last August for the International Congress of Youth Voices. And prior to that, she was someone who I read a lot and I just really admired just because of how like brave she is in her poetry and how willing she is to like disrupt the current narrative. So she's someone I've like looked up to for the longest time. And like when I met her in person, it was like absolutely insane. And I was like freaking out. Yeah. And some other people that I look up to, I would definitely say like a lot of young poets and like people Mm -hmm. my age I think as I've like kind of progressed in that like organizing poetry space I've realized that the people who actually inspire me most are like my peers which I know like people say that a lot but definitely it's like when I look around at like people my age and see what they're doing it always gives me like this like jolt of energy because it's Mm -hmm. like wow like we are like so powerful as young people right so like some people like that I look up to. Um, Malavika Kanan, who is an essayist, and um, she's someone I've really looked up to in terms of like writing like op-eds and journalism, which is mm-hmm. something um, I'm really into too. And also Samuel Getacho, and he's a spoken word poet from um, Oakland, who is also just an amazing writer. And I think both of them are really good about like taking their like art form, like whether that's like journalism or poetry and kind of making it political. And that's something I've always really tried to do with my work too, because I feel like art in itself is like wonderful and it's very brilliant. But if you're able to use art to kind of comment on like current social issues, that makes it like a hundred times more powerful. So yeah, definitely I look up to like people that are in my like immediate community in terms of like age group, but then also, um, I guess like people who are very cognizant of the ways that their work affects like the current like social and political stages. Yeah, I completely agree and stand by the fact that Gen Z is so powerful, especially today. Like we're out there on the front lines fighting Mm -hmm. for causes that we truly believe in. And we're really changing the narrative out there that's saying, that, you know, children or teenagers are incapable or don't know enough to actually create change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gen Z is really changing that narrative. And adults are starting to look at teenagers, not as kids, but as adults and looking at them where they are creating the change. And I love that, you know, Gen Z is really taking that initiative Mm -hmm. and taking that step forward. Definitely. I completely agree. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting to see that there's so many people like, especially back to the age thing that are like around Mm -hmm. our ages, and are on the front lines. And I think that just really exemplifies like the power our generation holds and kind of like that unabashed fear, which like I so admire in like, all my peers. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of starting initiatives, you started Celebrating Differences organization, and you are currently the executive director So can you tell us more about your organization and how you got started? Yeah, definitely. So um, like I said earlier, Celebrating Differences, we're an organization that promotes neurodivergent inclusivity, awareness, and allyship. And so I started the organization in August of 2018. And so basically um, what happened was... um, Growing up, my mom was always um, a huge neurodivergent advocate, and um, my brother is within the um, neurodivergent community, and so Mm -hmm. our family has always been very involved within the neurodivergent community, and I think growing up, I realized that a big, like, uh, not exactly a problem, but a big, like, phenomenon I realized was that um, neurodivergent advocacy and, like, awareness seemed to be, like, limited only to the community, like, in the sense Mm -hmm. that, like, if, like, neurotypical people didn't have, like, siblings or, like, family members or friends that were within the neurodivergent community, a lot of the times they wouldn't be aware 
of the issues happening within the community. And so that was kind of what prompted me to start the organization because I thought it was important for young people, especially to um, become more aware of um, the neurodivergent community and just like the issues within the community and learning how to be like good allies and um, how to help advocate for our peers. Yeah, so that was kind of the starting like starting point of the organization and um kind of as our organization like grew um we were able to um find a lot of like i was able lucky enough to find a lot of young people from like different parts of the nation that were also like super passionate about the issue and um we were able to kind of come together and um form like a executive national team and just start working together on different projects um a pro projects that we've like been working on in the past, I guess, like before Corona happened is um, our main staple project, staple project, I'm sorry, um, is the Celebrating Differences Carnival. And so this was an annual carnival um, that would be happening in like uh, multiple states where um, we'd have um, student volunteers come together and basically host a carnival that was um, catered to specifically for neurodivergent families. And so basically what would happen is um, at the carnival, we'd have different um, performances and we'd have different resources and games, snacks and activities that were all um, free of charge for neurodivergent families. And the goal of these events were um, one, to provide a safe space for these families, but also um, to provide like resources for um, neuro neurotypical allies on how they can get involved. And so these events would always be open to the communities. So you would have both neurodivergent families and um, neurotypical allies come. And it was just a really great um, event to help people like um, get to know the people in their community and also like have like safe spaces where they can enjoy themselves. Yeah, definitely. I think it's amazing that you started an organization that really provides an inclusive space for both neurodivergent and neurotypical people in the community to, you know, open their mind up to the other people and other experiences people have. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, a carnival is a great way, a fun way to get to know other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what are your main goals for celebrating differences organization? Yeah, so our main goals basically is to um, spread as much awareness as we can, which I guess sounds like a very like abstract, um, unquantifiable, like I guess like awareness sounds very abstract, but um, we kind of do that through like providing different resources and hosting different panels and doing mm -hmm. different outreach projects. And the goal basically is to provide um, pre-existing resources to connect um, different families to like pre-existing resources or creating like our own resources um, in terms of like to, to serve families in terms of like different issues within the community. Um, mm -hmm. Something that we've worked on um, in the past month um, that actually yeah, happened in August was we held a racism in the neurodivergent community panel. And then so um, basically this panel, um, sorry, in July, actually, I'm getting like all my dates mi mixed up. But um, basically, um, in July, we held um, this racism in the neurodivergent community panel, where mm -hmm. we had um, speakers come in who were from the neurodivergent community or who were um, neurotypical allies um, come in and talk about the ways that like racial discrimination is prevalent within the community on like a systemic and social level. And then mm -hmm. after the panel, we had um, um, the speakers like hand out resources virtually and PDFs about ways that um, families can um, help combat combat it when they um, encounter it with their children, whether that's like um, diagnoses or like uh, special education. And mm -hmm. so that's just kind of an example of what we do to try to spread awareness. And our goals is like our like, I guess, utmost goal is to like make sure that everyone is aware of um, the issues within the neurodivergent community. Everyone is aware of ways that they can support the neurodivergent community mm -hmm. because um, I think I was actually just talking to um, one of our team members about this, but like we realized that the more we worked, um, the further we worked like with our executive team and just kind of talked about um, neurodivergence, we realized that um, ableism and like neurodivergent awareness um, or I guess I'll just stick with 
ableism, but we realized that ableism was something that was like very prevalent, especially like in our nation. Um, but like people aren't very aware of the issue. So that was like our main goal, just to make sure that everyone knows um, ways they can support the community and everyone is aware of like the issues at hand. Yeah, definitely. So for our listeners, how can they support the neurodivergent community? Yeah, so definitely, um, I guess like the most prominent thing, I think, if you're um, someone who's neurotypical looking to support the community is I would recommend starting off with self-education. Mm-hmm. Um, like really great resources um, include like the um, Autism Self-Advocacy Network. Um, they provide a lot of amazing resources that talk about um, like what you can do as a neurotypical ally and how you can make spaces more inclusive. And so I think starting off from there is really great. Um, but like on a like individual level outside of like just self-education, I think being very cognizant of language, I think is a really big thing. Um, because I think a lot of the times the words we use um, are a lot of the times like come from inherently like ableist places. And that's something that our organization has also kind of been focusing on. So I think like kind of words like like the R word or like things that um, I guess have like kind of turned into like common day insults um, mm. actually like stem from an ableist background. Um, like and stem from like phrases that people use to like um, kind of devalue neurodivergent individuals so I think yeah being cognizant of the language you're using is very important and also like always being aware of the ways that you can make environments more inclusive and that's like kind of talking about not only like physical accessibility like um, the ways like you have like places laid out or you have like spaces laid out like if it's wheelchair accessible Mm -hmm. things like that but also like kind of a like I guess I could say like kind of like a social space that's also accessible for neurodivergent individuals and just making sure that um you're asking people for um if they need any accommodations and you're just making things as flexible as possible yeah I definitely think that conversation is you know overlooked and for those who may not know what is ableism yeah So basically, ableism is, it could be like, systemic and also like social discrimination against um, neurodivergent individuals. And so ableism, um, I think, like, basically takes most prominently, sorry, takes form in, I guess, like, kind of our current day system, where it's a lot harder for a lot of neurodivergent and um, individuals with disabilities to um, get special accommodations or also to like even access like different spaces, right? And so I guess like, and obviously outside of like the systemic region, there's also kind of like a social, uh, the social side of ableism where it's like that stigma around like individuals with disabilities. And um, I guess on that social side, it's, I guess, kind of a more, I don't think cultural is the right word, but it's this, like, generational thing that's kind of been ingrained where, like, um, disabled people aren't, like, seen as the same or, like, seen as, like, equal to, like, neurotypical people or, like, neurodivergent people aren't seen as the same as neurotypical people. So there's kind of, like, two sides to it, I guess. Yeah. So going back to your organization and your responsibility in the organization. So as executive director, what are your main responsibilities? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as Celebrating Differences executive director, I oversee, we have um, a few different branches within the organization. We have um, our chapters and then we have Mm -hmm. our media and design and then we have our outreach and then we have Um, our research teams and then so basically I'm in charge of just kind of overseeing all the different groups and making sure that um, everything is running smoothly in terms of like especially like in terms of like reaching out to different organizations and looking for partnerships and so Mm -hmm. I kind of serve as like a point of contact also for like any um, organizations that like are interested in partnering or um, anyone when anyone on the team has like any questions about any ways like the team runs. Right. So how, I'm so curious, how did you bring your team together? Yeah. 
So I guess the way our team came together is um, a little bit different than I think most organizations, um, I guess, start off. So um, basically, I started the organization. um, When I started the organization, I knew that I like I knew I wanted the team to be like young people from like different parts of the country, just so it would be um, just so I guess we'd have like a better like collective view of like what Mm -hmm. neurodivergence and like what ableism looks like around the country and the ways we can combat it. So basically what happened is um, I started the organization and I just sent out like um, this um, application form on like different like social media platforms. And I was lucky enough to get um, a lot of amazing people um, respond on who were interested. And so our team kind of just started off um, as like, young people from like different parts of the country who like had no idea um each other existed and then so slowly as we like started to work more together we became this like kind of team with like a lot of great synergy yeah that's amazing yeah I love that this is this space you've built is inclusive and you know people get to know each other and make friends Mm -hmm. yeah so what resources did you use to create CDO yeah so when we started off uh we were um I was really lucky to have um a lot of like um friends and mentors who were already organizing within um the neurodivergent advocacy space um who were able to like kind of guide me in the right direction um some really great organizations that um celebrating differences was um able to work with in the beginning include um, the Dream Achievers and Angels on Stage. And so these are both organizations uh, that uh, work with um, the neurodivergent community in the realm of performing arts. And so they were able to, although they were like more performing arts focused, um, they were able to like kind of guide us to towards like resources mm-hmm. and like ways that we could like help serve the neurodivergent community. So I think that was really helpful um, because like, t- I guess taking that step from like, from like just being like someone like an ally within the community to um kind of more of a position where we're actually doing advocacy work was definitely um kind of adjust an adjustment to make in the best way possible but it was kind of a learning curve also just like in like learning how to like manage and organize manage and like run an organization so Mm -hmm. um I was like super lucky to have um amazing people who were able to guide me along the way yeah so for anyone listening, if they want to start their own initiative and initiate change in their community, uh, but don't know where to start, what tips do you have for them in terms of finding mentors and resources to get started? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the first thing is um, always make sure that whatever you're organizing for, you are like 100% passionate about and you like genuinely mm-hmm. care about it. I know that that probably like, should be a given but I just like want to reiterate that because a lot of the times when you're like working on an organization it's like constant non-stop work so you just want to make sure that you really care about the work you're doing so it so you don't get like burnt out and obviously I think obviously like people do get like burnt out no matter how they're how much they're passionate about something just because like work is work and sometimes it's just like never ending but like making sure that you like really care about and even like have a personal connection to that cause that you're fighting for um, is something really important. Uh, In terms Mm -hmm. of getting started and um, looking for uh, mentors and things like that, um, I've always found that um, like cold emailing as like daunting as that sounds usually Mm -hmm. has like worked at least from my experience pretty well. I think um, when you're looking at mentors, definitely like look for people who are obviously kind of in that same um, community space as you, um, right. whether that's in terms of like what you're like organizing or what you're advocating for, or also like maybe in like that same like walk of life, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think that and also just like kind of doing your research on like the work they do, because I think if you're looking for like a mentor or someone to guide you, it's always nice for them to know that like, you know about their work they're doing and um, you have like reasons for why you want to seek mentorship from them. So I definitely say like, yeah, do your research and don't be afraid to reach out because a lot of the times like the people you're reaching out to um, 
if they're like people within the same community and they're also like advocating for the same topics, then they're, they'd probably be more than happy if they have the time to kind of guide you along the same path. Mm-hmm. I definitely can relate. I think more often than not, which was very surprising to me, people are willing to help and they want to help. They want to be there supporting you. And oftentimes you will get a response. And if you don't, worst case scenario, you just don't get an email back. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how can people get involved in celebrating differences organization? Yeah. So currently, actually, um, today we just closed up our um, fall round of applications for mm-hmm. um, new team members, but we're always um, happy and excited to um, work with people um, like whatever, regardless of hiring timeline, who are passionate about neurodivergent advocacy. Um, so if you guys are, um, any of you guys listening are interested in working with the organization or have any project ideas, um, you can definitely um, email our organization or um, like message us on Instagram. And um, um, you can contact us because we're always open to like new project ideas and um, new things we can do in terms of advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. So um, for anyone interested, link down below will be celebrating differences, organizations, email and Instagram. Uh, do you want to briefly at your Instagram? Yeah. Um, my Instagram is at um, Anouk. So that's at U-H dot N-O-U-K. Awesome. So if you want to reach out to Anouk or their organization directly, feel free to do so. So what was your biggest challenge you faced when starting Celebrating Differences organization? Um, hmm. I think the biggest challenge was one thing, I guess, was just like the logistics of like kind of putting together like a team, even though that ended up flowing incredibly um, well, um, but just kind of like looking for a team and then also just like I guess starting off like in that organizing role, um, something that I like, I guess there was kind of a large like learning curve in terms of like um, what it means to be like an advocate and what it means to like have, make sure your spaces like are a hundred percent inclusive. Cause I think as um, someone who was an ally previously, um, it was easy for me to like attend like events and like kind of show my support in that way. But mm-hmm. with the organization since now um I'm kind of am in charge of like holding space for neurodivergent advocacy um it required me to like be a lot more cognizant about like the ways that I'm like making sure the organization is like inclusive and ways like of making sure that like the organization is accessible to anyone who wants to join so I think that definitely was something like I had to like definitely pay more attention to which is like once again like really um No, so I guess I'm, like, really lucky that that was, like, kind of the learning curve since it was, like, super helpful in order to make the organization, like, more inclusive. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Is there anything you're looking forward to in terms of projects or initiatives celebrating differences organization is participating in in the future? Yeah, definitely. So something um, our organization is working on right now is a kind of back to school, know your rights um, panel and a resource presentation. So basically what we're doing is um, we are um, holding a panel in late September that talks about um, basically what are like students and parents rights in special education and the ways Um, that parents can um, advocate for their students in the ways that students can self-advocate. Because with like everything that's been happening with like online school, um, we were talking in our team and we um, realized like from like experiences that a lot of the times now, now that since school is online, a lot of students, um, especially neurodivergent students, aren't getting um, the like accommodations that they need in they need from like their IEP, which is basically this um, education plan provided to the school that lists out specific accommodations and specific services mm-hmm. um, neurodivergent individuals are entitled to have, like um, like especially like testing accommodations or like different like like access to like therapy and stuff like that. And so we realized like, especially with everything being online right now, a lot of students aren't getting full access to all these services that they should be having, right? So basically we've like put together kind of 
a like resource package and then also a presentation on like that analyzes like okay like what does legislation say about like special education on like a national level and pointing parents towards like um the different things they can refer to when they're contacting their school district and um when they're contacting their teachers um because one thing we realized um kind of off the back off the bat when we were exploring this idea of like special education um advocacy Mm -hmm. is a lot of the times like when parents like especially like parents who have students that just received a diagnosis or like when parents send their um, children into like the public education system for like the first time like a lot of the times like this entire like process of like attaining an IEP and then also like asking for accommodations is like super confusing because like I guess to someone who isn't familiar with legislation um that like deals with special education and like I think for a lot of parents they aren't at first um it's really like daunting to kind of have to dig into that yourselves and a lot of the times um schools a lot of the times school districts unfortunately aren't um as accommodating or like aren't very helpful in terms of helping spell that out um so that's just like something we kind of saw like and that kind of like we kind of saw the problem there. And since a lot of us on the team either had like personal experiences with not um, with not getting like um, the resources um, we need or like have like family members who'd like gone through the similar like IEP process and then not being able to like get the correct resources or correct accommodations, um, we realized that it would like the, our processes like in retrospect would have been so much easier if we had like some sort of like resource package or we have like had some sort of like I guess guide as to how to go about like this entire like getting your IEP and then afterwards like how to like make sure your student has accommodations and things like that mm-hmm. yeah yeah I'd love to shift gears a little bit to uh, your poetry and activism so how were you introduced to spoken word poetry yeah so I was, um, I think I, huh, I know that I, like, the first spoken word poem I've ever watched was definitely, like, I think just, like, something on, like, YouTube, and I think I was just, like, browsing on my, like, um, home screen, and then I just, like, saw a video, like, of, like, oh, someone performing poetry, that's super interesting, but I think I never really thought about it until kind of, like, the summer of my eighth grade year, I was saying, I went to this one camp that was, like, a, like, speech and debate kind of like public speaking um camp and then Mm -hmm. um one of our coaches at the camp he's he's like super amazing um his name oh wait actually I don't know if I'm okay never mind but um Mm -hmm. at the camp um one of our coaches was actually like a spoken word poet who did slam poetry Mm -hmm. and so he was like um really helpful in like educating us all about like the different ways of like public speaking so like spoken word or like um like speech and debate and so he talked to us about spoken word and I like became like super interested um just because like in school I like I previously had like studied like page poetry and like kind of poetry that's like meant to be read but I never really like learned anything about poetry that was like meant to be like recited out loud um so Mm -hmm. I thought that was super exciting and so um he actually recommended me to check out like a bunch of like poets online afterwards and so I like um immediately kind of fell in love with that like digital community of spoken word since I think around that time a lot of my access to spoken word was like through YouTube or through like online communities. So Mm -hmm. that I think really sparked my interest. And so that, so then the year of my freshman year, when I was like coming back from that um, camp, it, Mm -hmm. I um, was able to get connected to kind of my local poetry community, which like in like the like however many years like I existed in like my city I had no idea I had like no idea was there and so that was super cool um because the the San Jose poetry community um that's like kind of where like I 
got like more involved in spoken word um they're like a really really nice just like space of people from like different parts of the bay area who come and like perform poetry and it's like a really great community there so i guess like i actually started writing and actually started performing um once i kind of joined that space because previously i guess i was like consuming a lot of poetry but i didn't really know how i could start writing my own so i think being in that space was definitely like a catalyst for me to start um doing my own work yeah I definitely know people aren't as aware of spoken word poetry as you know some other activities that you know the general kid does so what advice do you have for people who are just starting out with performing or are looking into starting Mm -hmm. yeah so I guess if you're interested in spoken word I think actually going back into the history of spoken word Um, spoken word like especially kind of like took off in the United States like during like the Harlem Renaissance and Mm -hmm. I think as a result spoken word poetry has always been really like closely tied to being like very political and about like making like statements on social commentary so if you're interested in starting writing starting to write spoken word I think um it's like really cool to start off from like a place where you're just writing about things that you care about and things that like make you feel and make you very emotional. Cause I think for me, um, what I love so much about spoken word is basically like, for me, it's like a way where I can translate like my emotions, like directly to the page. So I would definitely say that like, um, definitely start writing spoken word from like a place of like, where you're like feeling a lot and like a place where mm-hmm. like you like care, really care about a topic because usually that'll really flow a lot easier and that'll just make your poem, I guess, come out along a lot stronger too. Yeah. So what inspires you when performing your spoken word poetry and like, why do you do it? Um. So I guess the main reason I do spoken word is because like I said earlier, I love how it kind of combines art and also it combi- combines like politi- the, the aspect of like political revolution. Um, so whenever I write, like I was saying earlier, I usually like write from a place of like really wanting to see change happen or like writing yeah. from a place of like, I guess like a lot of like emotional, like whether a lot of emotions, whether that's like anger, frustration or like passion. I think um the times or like the spaces um where like my poetry like I guess comes out the best is when I'm like super like I guess like frustrated or when I'm super like passionate Mm -hmm. passionate about a like specific issue I know one Mm -hmm. of the poems I wrote earlier this summer um I ended up it was like one of my favorite poems I've written probably this year and um I ended up writing it like just in one night um which was kind of longer than my uh kind of shorter a lot shorter than my usual writing process but um Mm -hmm. it was after I had read um Andrew Yang's op-ed about the um coronavirus and um like how Asian Americans needed to like embrace their like Americanness in order Mm -hmm. to be like not seen as like people who were like a threat and I think there's something about that op-ed that just like really ticked me off and it just kind of placed me in that like emotional state of like okay now that like these words are out there I have to put my own thoughts out like I have to kind of put out like a counter almost like a counter argument if that makes sense of like Mm -hmm. why like what I think too and so I think I usually always write from that mind space of like no like this is like what I believe or like no I think like these words need to put be put out there and like writing from a space of like wanting to see change I think that's usually when like my writing process like becomes a lot quicker Mm -hmm. yeah I think it's amazing that you're using the platform that you have in the opportunity to write poetry as a space to advocate for the causes that you really believe in. so what's your general writing process when you sit down to write a poem for a slam poetry contest or a public event mm-hmm. yeah so I guess I am guilty of, I'm guilty of not having the best writing process just because a lot of the times it's like very erratic um there are times mm-hmm. where I like sit myself down and I tell myself like okay we're gonna like finish this poem today or we're gonna write a poem today and sometimes sometimes like 
it comes out and then sometimes it takes a longer time. I think the one thing that has been consistent though is making sure that I get into a headspace where I'm like super like passionate about a specific issue because I guess the way I brainstorm a poem is first I always like connect it either to like a current social event or a current political event that I feel very strongly about and then afterwards I like will always tend to do um, a little bit of like research on the topic just to look at like the different facets that I want to touch upon or like the places where I feel a little bit unsure of and then afterwards I just kind of like do like kind of a bunch of like free writing where I just get kind of all my thoughts on the page and then I like kind of start editing from there so it's like a very loose writing structure but yeah once again the main consistent thing is just like always like making sure that I actually really care about what I'm writing about because once again that just flows a lot smoother yeah so how do you know when your poem is done like when to stop editing and when to stop changing Ooh, wait, huh, that's a, I think that's a really great question. And I've been thinking about this a lot too. I think from my opinion, hmm, I've been, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. That's like a really great question. And I was like actually talking to one of my friends about like, how do you tell when like a piece of like literature is like finished and like in turn, like a spoken word piece or anything. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, like, I guess, there are some poems where I feel like for now, this is like the place I want the poem to be. But I think like the thing with spoken word is like every poem you write, you kind of like carry with you like constantly. So sometimes like I'll look back on a poem and be like, oh, like this poem, like maybe I need to tweak it a little bit just because I like moved on to like kind of a different place in my life where I feel like Mm -hmm. maybe the poem like, could be shifted a little bit but then there are other times where like maybe I'll look back at a poem and be like oh I'm like in a completely different space but this poem still captures like the emotion and the energy I was feeling like a year ago or something like that so I think it really depends on like for me it's more of like my personal connections to a poem like there are some Mm -hmm. poems that I write where I'm like still constantly editing it just because I feel like there's so much going on currently and I need to like add more into the poem but there are also some poems that are more just like stagnant where I feel like they're more of like I guess like a time capsule if that makes sense of like what was going on during the time I wrote it and I feel like it's like I guess it's hard to put into words the ways like I distinguish like a finished poem from like a poem that still needs editing but I think most of the times like I'm always like continuously thinking about the ways I could like maybe tweak something within a poem just because like also I'm still learning a lot about like how to write spoken word and how to write page poetry so it's always fun to incorporate the new things I've learned into like old pieces I've done Mm -hmm. that's so interesting that you know you are I feel like that goes for any writer but you're always constantly trying to improve your writing and there really is no definitive answer to when a poem is finished Mm -hmm. it just I guess it just feels right yeah definitely yeah I think it's definitely a gut feeling like for Mm -hmm. that a lot of writers have like I feel like you'll know when a poem like wants to like sit still and like not change and you'll have that like Mm -hmm. gut feeling when you feel like a poem needs to be like tweaked a little bit more yeah So before going on stage, how many times do you have to practice your poem? And what does your practicing process really look like? Mm, Yeah. So especially for like, um, I guess like poetry slams, um, I like tend to practice like religiously, like the weeks beforehand. Like one thing, it's like one aspect of it, I guess, is just memorizing the poem. But um, the the second thing like I tend to do is just making sure that like, I am like performing in like all like the right ways because what a lot of the times when I get on stage and I think this happens to a lot of people it's like sometimes Mm -hmm. when I'm performing everything just like kind of happens subconsciously and like it's like I'm there but at the same time I'm just like performing like what I remember doing while practicing if that makes sense 
Yeah. And so when I'm practicing, not only do I like try to make sure, well, I definitely make sure that I have everything memorized. I also make sure that like when I'm practicing, I'm practicing with like the exact same like intonation and like with the same like cadence that I would want on stage. Just because I feel like the really cool thing about spoken word is the fact that in addition to like people are listening to your words, but they're also listening to the way that you say your words and the like kind of rhythm you have, right? So you can do so many things just with that, like just kind of with the energy you hold on stage. So I think Mm -hmm. it's also like playing around with like after you've settled on like what your piece is gonna like sound like in terms of like words, then I think the really fun part is getting to play around with the different ways you can perform a poem. Like Mm -hmm. in spoken word, um what's really cool is like there is kind of no limit um there are some poems where like people are like embodying a character even which is like absolutely insane but a lot of people are able to pull it off and then there's some poems where you can see people are like being more vulnerable and they're speaking from like their own experiences and so it's just like kind of playing around with that dynamic and seeing what works best and like what hits the hardest yeah So how do you get rid of the nerves before performing? Because I assume when you're performing in front of well-known people, including, you know, the California State Controller, like there are so many people, famous people that you've performed in front of. How do you get rid of those nerves? Um, I think that's a great question. For me, I guess I'm someone who I get anxious, like a little bit, a little ways like before like performing but when I'm actually like on stage or when I'm actually like um performing the poem itself uh, I don't feel very nervous and what mm-hmm. I've just kind of I guess like come to learn is um I always try to focus on like the possible like impact of the poem on um the, the audience members because just going back to what I was kind of saying about like spoken word poetry being like inherently like political and being like kind of an inherent source of like social commentary I think whenever I'm performing I always have like a goal in mind like in addition to like being like oh I don't want to mess up or something like I always tell myself like when I go up there I want to make sure that my words at least resonate with someone in the audience and that my words can like someone in the audience will be like oh hey like that line stuck with me or like oh I totally like resonate with like what you said about x y and z so that's always my goal to maybe start a conversation like among the audience or like to like I guess get people thinking about a political issue so I guess when whenever I get nervous about kind of like the semantics of the performance like oh like am I gonna mess up like oh like yeah so and so is in the audience I always kind of refer to that refer back to that larger goal I have of like okay like I'm just gonna go up there I'm going to perform this and I just want to do the best I can because like this poem is like bigger than myself um I think that was especially something I was thinking about a lot um, when I went to um, the International Congress last year in August where Mm -hmm. um, I was talking about earlier, but definitely like I remember the night I performed, I was like super nervous because like everyone there was just so amazing. All the young people there were very like all very like experienced and like just very passionate about what they do. So I was like very nervous just because everyone there was absolutely amazing. But I just kept on reminding myself that like, the goal, I guess, of performing in the end, at least for me personally, it's not just like about the words, it's like the feeling you leave people with. And it's like, Mm -hmm. the once again, like the dialogues you're able to start about like different issues, like political and social, right? So that's Mm -hmm. just something I tend to focus on. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you have any favorite poems that you've written or performed? And why is it your favorite? Yeah, yeah, so I actually do I feel like my favorite I have like favorites that like switch from time to time and it Mm -hmm. kind of just depends on like once again like I think how relevant like the poems are um but a current poem that I wrote that I've been kind of like looking back at and like kind of like toying around with is this one poem I have called color real connotations and Mm -hmm. so basically the poem kind of compares it's compares like the idea of like painting on a canvas and like mixing different colors with um kind of our like racial justice um 
like racial justice and social justice system we have currently um like a line um so the way the poem is structured I guess it's like it starts off with like this like imagery of like me at art class and then it kind of transpires slowly um into this idea of like our social justice system being like Mm -hmm. um a little bit twisted just like how like colors ended up being twisted so like a turn I guess like in the poem like I guess the reason why I like the poem so much is like number one it's like I guess like very like politically relevant right now but also um I was just really happy with like the sense of like the way I guess like the poem was able to hit at the issue because the poem just starts off very like innocuous with me saying like my art teacher is telling me about how like these colors are just different complex emotions and then as I continue I'm like talking about you know she says that like when red by itself is like angry on the palette but red drizzled with like you know passion fruit orange or whatever is like this glowing sunset and I go into like a bunch of analogies like how like gold and purple is like this but gold and silver is this Mm -hmm. and how um you know like black and yellow is like a bop but black and blue is like a bruise and then it kind of takes like a sharp left into like how black on white is classy but black on black is ghetto like how gun on white is patriot how gun on color is terrorist and so I think I was just really happy with the way that um the poem didn't start off political but was able to take a political turn because a lot of events I think I've been asked to perform at some are like political venues and then some are just like places where people are just kind of more there to enjoy art I feel like when I start whenever I start at this poem I feel like it kind of almost like throws the audience kind of in for a loop and I just like love seeing the way that people react to kind of that change and that shift in the poem so I think that's Mm -hmm. definitely one of my favorite poems to perform and also a poem that I've really been revisiting in this time that's so interesting, especially now. It's such a powerful, you know, idea to play around with. Um, yeah, I definitely want to hear it sometime. Is there, are there any links out there where we can hear you speak? Um, and yeah. any links where people can watch you perform? Yeah, definitely. So um, I just have a website up with all my poetry. And so it's just anookye.com a-n-o-u-k-y-e-h.com and then so on there I have my written work and then I also have like work from my spoken word so um if you guys are interested in checking it out it's all up there yeah so you were the 2018 Cupertino Youth Poetry Slam champion so what did it feel like when your name was called as the champion of the slam poetry competition and Um, did you expect to win um it was I guess it was pretty exciting um, just because I think it was one of the first poetry slams that I've like performed at and competed in. And it was really exciting, I think, to be able to like have like my work recognized. And just because um, I guess like Cupertino is like really close to where I live. And so it was just really nice to be like within like kind of my immediate community and just knowing that like people there like resonated with um your work because the thing with like spoken word poetry it's like there are like technically like judges but a lot of the times with like um slam competitions it's like judges are just like random people in the audience that they pick um to like rate your poems and I think that's what makes it really interesting because a large part of slam is making sure that it's like accessible to audience members like you don't have Mm -hmm. to be a I think kind of different from page poetry it's like you don't have to be very well versed in poetry or like in poetics or language to be able to like grasp onto the meaning or the feeling of a spoken word poem and so like Mm -hmm. kind of going back to Cupertino it was just really nice to know that the audience members which were like just like like community members within like kind of the space where I like reside they were able to like like I guess like feel the poem and like understand the poem and also have it resonate with them so I think like Mm -hmm. even like aside from like championing it was just really great knowing that there were people who like were able to resonate with my work especially since at that time I was just like still starting off yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so to wrap up here could you share a few final words of inspiration for our listeners on how they can make an impact in today's world yeah 
So I think a really great piece of advice I've gotten from um, a few mentors is just in order to make an impact first, you need to figure out what you really care about. And that could be one issue or it could be like um, a wide variety of issues. And then second, figure out what you're good at. Because mm-hmm. once you figure out these two things and you're able to com- combine what you're good at, whether, you know, that's like writing or whether that's performing or um, making art or something like that, if you're able to connect that to a cause that you're passionate about and you're able to combine those two things, then you're like essentially a- unstoppable, right? Because you're mm-hmm. doing something you're, you love and you're good at while um, like advocating or like serving this cause that you care deeply right. about. And like, I think that just kind of ensures that your passion and your heart is 100% kind of uh, 100% in your work, which makes your work like a lot more impactful. And it's just like making sure that you're doing something you love. Mm -hmm. So that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you, Anouk, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it was amazing speaking with you and learning more about your experiences and your journey as not only an executive director of an organization, but as an activist and a poet. Thank you. Thank you to our listeners for listening to today's podcast. Make sure to follow She the Change on Instagram at She the Change Pod.